0: So he starts doing me and he says, Go E, make an E sound and it'll help. And I was, Wow, this guy cares. He has a suggestion and knows how bad and wants to help. This is guy better and better. So he's going, Son, we're going we're gonna to shoot you up with Botox, shoot your throat, and, and, and uh, you'll have no voice for a week and then it'll come back and it'll be that voice. And I was, Totally in his hands. So anyway, long story short, three weeks, still no voice. I've known in my voice, like still fucked up, but it's kind of like even even more so. That was a setback, I had to cancel the whole session. All these people that were giving their free time because this whole deal is basically done on the goodwill of, uh, of, of of dozens and dozens of people. You know, it was not uh, a pain
1: gig. It was not a huge money-making uh, endeavor.
0: Long story short, I got shut up, I uh, don't shut up. Uh, previously, when I had this problem, a uh, guy gave me five days of, uh, of steroids and I was able to do a gig. So I went to the same doctor and said, you know, he gave me the five-day course and then I finished the uh, recording with a fucked up voice, but at least, you know, like I got through it. Subsequently, um, a friend of mine, Michael Simmons, um, Tell me about this voice person. Like I, I've got. i been going to a voice teacher. I went to like a, a Columbia opera teacher who was the voice person up there I've been taking in before the lockdown. So this guy had a, a new person, uh, Jean Geese. So uh, again, coming to the chase, uh, I've been working with her on Zoom. And she is also from the south side of Milwaukee, as I am, which is like, Uncanny. She went to Market University, the Catholic University in Milwaukee, and majored in, in voice. Like she's, she knows her shit and she's a jazz singer. Anyway, we've been having sessions for about, we've got about eight of them, and it's it's made, done wonders in improving my voice. Basically, um, I'm getting an amplifier and a microphone and learning to sing through a microphone. Like a whole, you know, that not requiring, you know, but that that's part of the package and anyway uh also the progress are being made she has tons of great suggestions I, i'll do a song to say what about this what about so it's i'm on the right track i'm working with someone who's like like really helping so i'm oh, um most
1: encouraged from the doctor's standpoint what is the prognosis there is this just something that you're gonna have to deal with forever or
0: the uh, prognosis is that it's the prognosis is it's is incurable there's uh workarounds basically you know like you know it's like oh, you know like what okay it's, it can't be cured now what do i do so there's you know on one hand uh nothing can be done on the other hand there's all, many things can be done which i'm working on now and they're working they're actually you know like it's getting better is it
1: a case where you have good days and bad days
0: oh definitely some days are better than others absolutely
1: do you get a sense of how profound an impact this is going to have on your music making going forward
0: she suggested this one amp I, think it's 65, I forget what it was but a certain kind of like really great amp which weighs 16 pounds uh, an instrument will go through it like when I've been playing my juke my my ukulele National Steel Tune, like a banjo, almost oh, exclusively for a couple of years. I started like getting back into it when we had the 100 songs because I heard the ones we already did and I noticed how great the ones with the juke sounded and how lackluster the ones with the banjo sounded. So my idea is okay. Work on the juke, so I've been playing it for like two years now, and it's 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 getting way better. Of course, like both that and my voice go through this this amp, which weighs sixteen pounds, so it's carryable, roundable. I find out what settings are good, what you know, like how to, and and I just take it with me when I have a gig, totally portable, and I'll have um, a a tool (laughs) that I need to uh, take it forward. Not to mention, I mean, there's all these approaches the singing that I'm trying out. So it's, it's, uh, it's, uh I mean, it's uh, exciting and shit, you know, and uh, all sorts of other, the voice is weird. Let, let me tell you one voice story. I was on some weird drugs, some kind of like um, DMT. DMT sort of thing, but DMT only lasts for a very short time. And this shit, I had to in my only for two fucking weeks. I mean, really, we are up for two fucking weeks.
1: Ketamine or? not, not. not I've never had ketamine so I can really say it. what was the scenario that you found yourself on this drug that you don't know what it was. Oh, well, I was a
0: speed freak mainly me and Maxwell lady. I copious speed 12 years. And this is an interesting drug drug that came our way. Cutting to the chase, suddenly, you know, you know Joseph Spence, right? Yeah, yeah. You know, Melanie, of course. I got quite right. For about six hours, I had suddenly I had this voice which was half Joseph Spence, and half Melanie. And it was the funniest fucking thing. I, I, I was singing, and people were like, like rolling on the fucking floor. I mean, like, like I wasn't saying that I was doing this weird, amazing thing. I was doing this weird, amazing thing. And I thought, well, how many would I sound sounded like if I was born in Egypt 700 years ago, if I was born in, you know, in China 2,000 years ago, and... and you absorb the language when you're in embryo like you can like the resonance of, of, of speech that surrounds you um gives you a jump, jump start to your the way the way you're gonna the way you're gonna sound basically and the idea of how many possible voices one can have and how to access them like suddenly i had access to What else do I have access to? Is there any way of like, like, like dialing it up? Uh, Well, yeah, spirit possession. That'll do the (laughs) trick.
1: As I was saying before we started recording and and I was referring to your speaking voice, but this absolutely uh, applies, (laughs) applies to your singing voice as well that you, before the video came on, it was clear that it was you because you have an immediately identifiable yeah. voice was that something? was it something that you developed is that just naturally your your singing style naturally
0: yeah like if you go, go to um mm. recently released was the um mm. wildest dreams mm. stream do you know about that one okay mm. uh, in the 90s um, um i met these guys from chicago and a band called the dysfunctionals rich kruger sky burn and they said you know could we play with you long story short we, we formed a friendship um, and uh, I did some gigs with them in Chicago, where they are, and out here. And they released a cassette, like about 400 copies, called uh, "Not in Our Wildest Dreams." About, and it was, it was, it's been, re- it's been released on my label, streaming, uh, just about a month ago. Um, the label is um, Don Giovanni. And yeah, again, cutting to the choice, the last thing. I didn't know that Rich Kruger had um, this tape I gave him, which I recorded it in 1956. I got a tape recorder for my high school graduation. What do you want? I want a tape. And um, I made up this uh, parody of Rock Island Line about the bus, the, the, the Oklahoma Avenue bus, which is the bus that, that my main form of transportation between you know, home and high school. And it was like, you know, I. Like, with the Rock Island Line, like like he lies about what he's got, you know, uh, so he doesn't have to pay the toll. And in this case, like you lied about the transfer being filled back. You know, the point is, I, I heard the fucking thing again. Damn, I had that same fucking, you know, quasi Midwestern hillbilly voice. That guy I kind of sang it in the hillbilly style. I mean, I first heard hillbilly music in 1943, Pistol Pack and Mama. That's the 19- song. And also one called There's a Star Spangled Banner Waving Somewhere, which really, like, the melody absolutely, like, fucking killed me. And then I heard Joe Stafford as Cinderella, G-Stump, doing Temptation. My main imprint, Joe Stafford, of course, the popular singer, very good, and very well rounded, with this guy named Red Sovine. They did this parody of Temptation. You came, I was alone, I should have known you were Temptation. I heard he's very dramatic, and, and, and and They do it this hilly style, and you came. I was alone. I said, no, known, Chuck. I should have you were TMP And she channels Mabel Carter. I was like, it's glorious. And the idea of taking these great American songs, incredible structures, and doing them hilly style styles uh, you know, like, um, an epiphany from when I was 10 years old. Uh,
1: being from Milwaukee, how are you so steeped in hillbilly music? Well, well, like I say, 1943.
0: Hearing Pistol Pack and Mama, and then uh and then subsequently, like uh in the late 40s, I heard uh, uh Money Marbles and Chalk, an occasional country song. It was it was still called hill music. They didn't they didn't start calling it country yes, and investor in nineteen forty nine. Like they used to call uh rhythm and blues used to be called race music, like it was race music and hillbilly. And in 1949, Billboard changed it to rhythm right. and blues and country and investor. So anyway, I was hearing occasional crossover stuff because stuff was crossing over. And then um, when I discovered folk music in 1956, like that sort of suddenly this this whole whole thing blossomed up. I went to Nashville in 1957 and uh, went to Grand Ole Opry and, of course, was exposed to old-timey music and finally heard the Smith Anthology, at which point it was like, you know, game fucking
1: on you heard the old folk music and and you were like that's this kind of music that i want to make
0: that's the stuff the fact that it was
1: <laughs> so strange
0: and uh so american and, and, and I, 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 felt I i had well me and thousands of other of uh, my like contemporaries felt that uh, they had to continue doing this music or the sacred flame would go out and of course uh, the sacred flame didn't quite the opposite like like uh, all all, all of knowledge of traditional music is like you know growing growing. i'd love to see stats on how many people are playing all-time music like how many you know traditional there aren't any but like i i'm I'm guessing the numbers are probably rising pretty steadily
1: strange is a great way of putting it i I remember the first time that i heard the Anthology of folk music and I was sort of taking it back because I, I, I do think that to some degree, at least obviously I'm a couple of generations removed from it, but the folk music that I heard that was filtered through New York City in the 60s was at least the stuff that kind of became popular and has continued to survive, it does seem to some degree like it was homogenized a little bit or did lose some of that strangest. The Rounders, and you obviously are a big part of this, kept that sort of, that, that weirdness to it. But, you know, to some degree, it does seem like some of the artists kind of lost that original edge.
0: It's basically, it's, uh, it's
1: goofiness.
0: He's been telling himself like, like goofy as shit. I mean, you know, I mean, and, and, I mean, like, you know, They're making the Dixie Dewdrop and, you know, the the, the fruit jar drinkers and the skillet clickers. And, you know, I'm very big into Goofy. I think that the whole concept of Goofy is is one of the most liberating, um, mind-expanding (laughs) concepts that there is actually. I do believe that goofiness could save the world if it was
1: installed thoroughly enough in humanity. What's your sense of why that goofiness was lost was were were people just trying to be taken too seriously or were they trying to be too seriously,
0: cool like like they were they were this you know they, they were they, they, yeah they took it seriously and i mean you can you know like uh what's to stop you from taking it seriously instead of being goofy for christ's sake you know but then i don't know like i, I guess some people just have a uh, an anti-goofy uh, aspect
1: <laughs> was there a time you know at, at sort of the height of that success for for you in in that time period in the in the the sixties and into the seventies you know whether it was the band making it onto the Easy Rider soundtrack where you were being pressured to take some of that goofiness to maybe sing it in a little more straightforward manner not at all I mean no one no <laughs> no
0: one dared to try <laughs> um, but, but uh, we I mean we weren't we basically Existed at the poverty level. You know, I mean, which you could do back then. I mean, at the poverty level used to be pretty, you know, pretty comfortable
1: in the 60s and up until the 70s. And then suddenly, um,
0: things got more expensive.
1: Does something like the Easy Rider soundtrack, does that change the math at all for you as a band?
0: Maybe more people are aware of us. But I, my take is that the the number of People in the U.S. aware of the rounders is some small fraction of 1% is my, is my guess.
1: <laughs> sure, in, in 2020, but I, I assume that, that there was, you know, maybe it was closer to 1% in the 60s or 70s, right?
0: No, much. <laughs>
1: Okay, fair enough. That wasn't a, a, a transformative moment for the band. We got stiff
0: for all the money, but that's that's a long
1: story. How did you end up in California in that time period?
0: The producer, uh, Fraser Mohawk, who is still uh, whose name I'm still blocking, um uh, Barry. Anyway, Fraser Mohawk um was working for Electra and uh he wanted me and Weber had broken up, but he asked if, if we could perform at this. At this uh huh? show with other bands that make some actual money, so he did. And he said he wanted to record the Holy Modal Rounders, and i had broken up with whoever because of um mm. his um Beyond the Pale fuck-ups that were going on had broken up, you know, in 1965, which is a long, long story, which you can <laughs> all learn uh when the um uh, double vinyl album is released early next year of uh and sixty-five, and um, uh, Indian War—they were both acquired by Don Giovanni from ESP Records. I've been asked, I mean, I—I can write as big a thing as I want to about it. I wrote this ten thousand-word thing when about Steve Weber when he died, and, and i I've written written—I'm working on this memoir, which is being copyrighted now, and I'm, I'm taking all the parts I've written about Weber and putting them together. Basically, it's going to be this big book about. Basically, the story of me and whoever between when I met and the time the album, the last album in the set, Indian War was, um, you know, uh, made. Oh, anyway, so um, Fraser wanted to record the Rounders, and in the meantime, I formed this band called the Mori Eels, which is me and my lady Antonia, Mm -hmm. Richard Tatter, and Sam Shepard was the drummer, and I said, "Well, if." If you want to record the Rounders, then you have to record record the Rounders with, with my band, the Mori Eels. And uh, the Mori Eels eat the holy modal Rounders was, you know, like implying all that. But after making the record, decided to continue playing together, the Mori Eels plus Weber. So obviously it was the holy modal Rounders again. So that was, uh, and, and coincidentally, uh, at the same time, Sam Shepard's as by Antonioni, to go to Southern California to write the scriptures at this Point So, like, like suddenly, you know, like, and they're like, the stars were obviously aligned.
1: Yeah, Sam Shepard, I understand it pretty okay after the Holy Moly Rounders. <laughs> yeah, he did good. So how did that bring you to California? That's where the Electric Studio was, and if we wanted to make the album.
0: Uh, Electric was in Los Angeles, so we had to go, to, Los, we had to, go to, to,
1: to the Electric Studio in Los Angeles, where Sam also had
0: to go to write the screenplay.
1: At other points in your life, maybe the idea of just uprooting and moving to California wasn't as big of a as big of a deal as it would be at this point.
0: Well, actually, when I, when I, when I got to New York in 59, I was 21, and I decided that I'd, I'd been in California. I went from Milwaukee to Chicago to San Francisco uh, to, to New York in the space of 1959. I decided, well, I can do whatever I want. So I got there in October. When it gets cold again, I'll go to California and I'll go. You know, and, 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 and that's what I'll do. When, you know, I go, uh, oh, you oh know, And then I'll come back to New York. And go, that's, you know, that's, that's, I, I can do anything I want. I'm 21, you know. So that's what I'm going to do. So I, I hitchhiked. I hitch hitchhiked to California, all the way across country. Never hitchhiked again. Uh, it was interesting, but tedious. And uh, after just two weeks, I was feeling funny, wrong, weird. I had no idea what was wrong. And... Another two weeks and I realized I'm homesick. I'm homesick for New York City, and I'd never experienced homesickness. I wasn't homesick when I left Milwaukee, and uh, the longer I was in California, the more I felt that my soul was in New York, and I was being ripped into. And um,
1: I went back to New York. <laughs> How long did you last in California?
0: We got there in March and came back in October.
1: Not even a full year? No. You know, I was going to ask you sort of to compare what the, the New York scene and the Los Angeles scene felt like at the time, but that might be unfair because it sounds like you probably didn't really have enough time to really ingratiate yourself into L.A. And
0: sort of my general cultural awareness, you know, goes back decades. <laughs> when I got to um mm. to uh, the West Coast in uh, 96, I was at Berkeley and... um. Mm. Uh, joined by a friend, uh, long story short, uh, and we started driving back and forth between Los Angeles and San Francisco a lot. And they, they were, uh, well, I'd, at the time it was sort of like uh, like you have to sort of be on one side, and and uh, San Francisco was, was was hipper than Los Angeles. We'd go down to L.A. It would be it would be more it would be more like um, there'd be more people. Uh, but it was interesting. Like, look at the style of uh, California bands in, in the 1960s, Like, like, like the Mamas and Papas are pretty quintessentially Los Angeles, and uh, you, know, you know the Grateful Dead. You know, but the point being that they're 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 both they're both valid. They're both interesting, and 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 having having both tastes is so much better than having only one. New York's another pole. The whole thing, of course, but um, I'm I'm very. New York has more stuff going on on one hand. On the other hand, there's stuff going on. Like when I got to New York in 1959, I felt that there were almost a dozen people that I had met that I could say anything to them, and it would be okay, and they could say anything to me, and it would be okay. And priorly I thought, you know, there there isn't anybody like that anywhere. And then Suddenly, and my point is that right now uh, I could go into any American town uh, with um, 10,000 people or even 5,000 people and find someone that I could say anything to and it would be okay. And they could say anything to me and it would be
1: okay. You think that's a, a cultural shift? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I
0: mean, there there is much more uh, openness. I mean... The fact that, um, I mean, they threw Lenny, Lenny Bruce in jail for saying fuck
1: on stage. Uh, more puritanical ideas of, of people just being more more reserved back then. Oh, yeah.
0: Well, uh, this has been an ongoing thing, but, but it's, I mean, there's been a profound difference in the last you know, several decades, of course. And it's been. Good
1: thing. <laughs> you mentioned some some things that, that Stephen did that were, were beyond the pale at that point. What what did you what what was beyond the pale for you at that point in your life and your career? We're in
0: Baltimore. we
1: have a gig in Baltimore,
0: and uh, oh, there's, there's a chain called the Hot Shop. Hot shops, sort of like like Howard Johnson's, like a like a chain of book, you know. And it's um, it's a weekday and it's lunchtime. And the place is crowded, and we're in there, and we're proceeds to give hashish to the waitress. Hey, hey I didn't give this hashish here. For the, you know, like I mean, like. And um,
1: another example
0: of the, of the time, he'd be up for like generally speaking, up for five days and crash for three. That was the uh, you know, that, that was his pattern when he was uh, in his speed freak days, and um, by Early 1965, he went through this period in which he was up for more like uh, five days and then crashed for three. And while he was up, every sentence he said had absolutely nothing to do with the sentence before or the sentence that was to come. And actually, like I, 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 in retrospect, I, 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 would, I would I would kill for a recording, you know, but. Uh, and, and finally, he started missing gigs, and when he when he when, when, when he when he blew off the third gig, that was that was the last straw. That was in like July of '65.
1: I mean, you alluded to your own speed days, but it, it never got that bad for you. <laughs> to, to find bad. His his behavior being beyond the pale. Was there anything that you sort of did yourself or saw in yourself that that would have been beyond the pale for you? Well, basically,
0: me and Antonio were just like. Do music for days and days now, or else there's a gig I do the gig like like uh I quit taking it in '75, and uh, so my last you know speed gigs were with the Unholy Modal Rounders. Not, not all of them, but like uh, frequently I, I'd be you know like speeding during a gig.
1: Did you ever find drugs to be um, beneficial for the for the creative process or for the music making process? Yeah,
0: I mean um, I, I've been smoking pots since um, I tried it in 58, but nothing happened. And then uh, uh, I smoked a lot of it when I got to New York in 59, but um, um, I never got high. I got high once on a dash. And I was in California. When I was in California after New York, uh, one day um, I smoked some pot, and suddenly the refrigerator was very funny. And um, at which point... So... Uh, I still like to smoke pot before playing music. It just, it just, um, it's more fun. Uh, I like to do it longer. Uh, and uh, it's interesting. Like, like um, one day, a Walker Shepard, Sam's Kid. Um, I'm in with him and, and E.I. Smith, which is just needing one vocal track to finish. Anyway, he's at <laughs> the house and we're playing music. He's double banjo stuff and it's kind of, <laughs> let's smoke some pot. And so we, you know, and, and, and bing, like, like, suddenly, like, like, it was, it was interesting and something was happening. I mean, the stuff works basically.
1: It gets back to that, that idea we talked about earlier about the weird side, about the goofy side. It, it sounds like you're able to tap into the goofy side more on pot.
0: Actually, I come to think that, that that is true. That
1: is true. Absolutely. <laughs> you teamed up again with, with Stephen, you know, a, a, a few, few other times over the gears. Um, what's your sense of what kept bringing the two of you together in spite of the fact that obviously there was some personal tension there?
0: Well, we moved back to the East Coast in 96, I think it was, 96 or after basically kicked out of Oregon, which is a long funny
1: story. Impressive, yeah.
0: You know, and um, I was so the him, but um, oh, man, people kept saying that they, they want to hear us. Now, now we can hear. We always wanted to hear you guys. Now we can hear you guys. And and so well, I should, yeah, I should do a gig with them. Yeah, I mean, that, that would be wrong not to. And but it was actually it was fun. It was enjoyable. We had a good time playing. Uh, so that's the late nineties, and we could The only problem was that his. More of his brain was gone, and um, mm-hmm. he couldn't work out new songs. He couldn't even remember some of the old three chord songs that we used to play, and he couldn't even remember a lot of the songs that he that he actually written.
1: When you say part of his brain is gone, you mean the, is that the drugs,
0: alcohol, oh, basically?
1: Yeah, like he
0: quit taking speed for the most part in the uh, by the uh, early seventies, more junk and booze.
1: Do you, do you feel that, that as far as uh, having a collaborator, that that was a a special and, and kind of singular collaboration for you over the course of your career? Is that part of what kept bringing you back together?
0: It was magical at first. I mean, the magic lasted from like when we met. Like, the, the first time, was like, uh, this, this is my long lost brother that I never knew I had, I had... like, like, in like, brain. Like, first, it, it was like, uh, you don't think the thought, the thought thinks you. It's just like, like there and then uh the first time we played together it was like absolutely in the fucking pocket and um it was just amazing and wonderful until we're talking may 58 63 uh, when the beatles hit which is right after kennedy got shot in the winter and 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 and, and, and early 64 um, um weber realized that what we were doing had uh some kind of chance of success and uh, uh This absolutely
1: jolted him.
0: And he started talking. Well, what he started doing was um, Mm -hmm. bitching on stage about uh, he's sick of these old songs. I can play something new. I can't stand these old songs. And and, and then, I mean, working on a song was play it three times in a row. Bingo, there you go, you know. And so I would, okay, uh, the gig's over. Let's work out this song. He just was stomping off. That was sort of the way the way it it, it it started to fall apart. We had about seven months that were absolutely miraculous and ecstatic, and and like it was it was like suddenly my my life was three times larger than it had been pre- previously.
1: The good and successful time with him only lasted about seven months. Uh,
0: well, the purely good time, like after that. After, it was up, basically it was ups and downs after that.
1: That's got to be tough when, when somebody passes like that, somebody who you were obviously close with, you know, creatively and personally. And it had been, what, like 17 years since the last time you spoke?
0: Yeah. Yeah. So it was, uh, I mean, in, in, in a way, he was already
1: dead. My feelings are more like,
0: uh, wow, he really lasted a long time.
1: You've never made music with the explicit intent of whether or not it was going to be good for your career well um i mean it had nothing
0: to do with what we actually played we 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 played the same kind of (laughs) the only kind of music that we could play i mean like uh how on earth could could the holy mober runners sell out
1: (laughs) you have subsequently taken music lessons right i mean you you are even, even though you had had a, a, you know, successful music career in its own right, it sounds like you're still actively trying to to push yourself.
0: Yeah, always. I mean, there's, there's, um, there's always stuff that I want to do that I can't yet. Like, uh, I want to um, be able to compose in the uh, early 60s rhythm and blues style. Like the way the, the way rhythm and blues sounded between about you know nineteen sixty and about sixty five six, that whole period just completely enthralls me.
1: Wilson Pickett, kind of. Oh, let's see.
0: Well, um, uh, oh. Smokey Robinson.
1: Okay, like Motown style. Well,
0: uh, like Motown style, like Stack style, like like Smoky style, like like Chicago. <laughs> You know,
1: I'd say almost objectively, like, just the best music probably that's ever been created.
0: I, I like the, the way you do the things you do. Oh, I really got a hold on. Holland,
1: Dozer, Holland. Yeah, I mean, it just, uh, and I'm, like,
0: one of the reasons for 100 songs was I wanted to study all these different period styles with the idea of being able to work in that style, you know, to, 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 to do one like that. Uh, and I'm I, I'm so far away. Like one of the big mind blower on the
1: album on the set is um,
0: the girls talk.
1: Dave Edmonds is actually I didn't I didn't know his name
0: it was Costello song.
1: A rock pile song. Yeah. When I heard the original
0: Costello version,
1: I'm gonna get a lozenge.
0: Lozenge, lozenge.
1: Found. Yeah, Dave Edmonds, I always considered to be. I mean, obviously, you know, he was uh, Stiff Records and, you know, a contemporary of, of Elvis Costello and Nick Lowe, but he was also very much kind of in that rockabilly style. And,
0: and he actually altered the song. I mean, like, the like, intro uh, on a different key than the song is, and then the instrumental break going into the same different key he changed the words and, and his version was much, much, much better than, um, and, um, again, cutting to the choice, I've been working on this song for months and months and months to be able to find like, 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 uh, it took, it took me months to be able to do it without having to follow it because it's, it's sort of complicated. Um, and, um, so I've I I finally internalized that, and like I would I would I would I would I would kill to be able to like uh, make something uh, along those lines. I'm also uh, I would love to be able to write in the um, you know 1930s 40s Great American Songbook style.
1: Tin Pan Alley. You well, know,
0: Tin Pan Alley was basically invented by the uh, blacks and the Jews. Uh, the, the before there was a Tin Pan Alley, which is in the. Uh, um, Sort of mid twenties. Uh, it was on 14th Street.
1: This is a project that you were working on for a long time, and that you uh, worked in so many different genres to to create. What did you learn in terms of in terms of songwriting? I mean, how how useful of a tool was that for you ultimately? I'm slowly getting
0: better at um, composing, and I'm a, I'm a, a slow learner. learner, but infinitely patient. I'm 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 good at perseverance. I mean, there's songs that I there's a song I thought of in the 1970s, and
1: um, didn't write it until like four
0: or five years ago.
1: It was floating around in your head for that long.
0: Well, it was called "Do It in the Graveyard." It was a song about
1: (laughs) fucking in the graveyard, basically. It sounds like a cramp song. (laughs)
0: But um, I finally got it about five years ago. Like the song, the song finally came to me, and it was like a. And like um, uh, All the Time in the World, from uh, the me and Jeffrey's second album, I had that song for years. And I showed it to Jeffrey, and he came up with a beat, with, with a beat part, which totally transformed it. And then we finished it together. And uh, there was a um, – but that song and, – and Duke with the Beat next was a song that I thought about for – Years and years and years again before I finally managed to, to nail it.
1: We're talking about Jeffrey Lewis. Where does he rank in uh, the, the many collaborators you've had over the years? No question, number one. What What is it about him that you work so well with?
0: We met in all four. We kept talking about we should play together in England, which we did in in in, in uh, twelve. We should record something together, like like a single. To um, you know, because. You can besides selling your old merch, they, they want to buy something by the people that are playing. So um, I, I, I have a couple of songs actually. I have a couple of songs too. Let's let's get together. I'm getting your songs and we we'll get together tomorrow night. So we got together tomorrow night. We bought a bass player, and we started working on these songs. Uh, we we had like about twenty of them songs besides like um. Uh, a redo of one of my songs. So one of one of one was actually a song that, that um, had been recorded previously, but none of the others were. And for three days, we went over these songs. And on the fourth day, we recorded all the songs. And on the fifth day, we added all the overdubs. And then on day six, he, um, um, and when, when, when we, uh, on day six, he mixed and mastered it. A whole album from not even thinking of of, of an album existing to here's an album, all done in six days flat. And it was effortless. Like his organizational skills are so brilliant, as well as being effortless and transparent that um, it was just, the whole process was like like falling off a log. So we get to England, and um, we do the first gig. And... We have like two weeks, a gig a night. And, and it's England, so they're all like like very drivable too. And he's talking about how the gig went. And this song was neat. And in this song, what if we like, 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 basically like, like, and, and I, I thought this was ongoing. Like, like his default setting is how can this be better? And uh, the idea of like um that being a way to operate for a person to be. Um it never occurred to me like this is like like looking at everything that you're doing and like um he was concerned about how solitary art making is as was like music and what can be done about that so so he figured, okay, Wednesdays uh, people will come over and we'll draw together, you know and bring bring beer and snacks and um so it's a way of. Making a solitary art, a social one. And it's a way of forcing him to work on his cartoons for a four hour stretch between eight and 12 once a week because he always has more things he has to do than he has time for. And it forces him to clean his house every week. And he's bad at names, so he'd practice like coming, John. Hi, John, this is Amy. And you know, like every time someone would come in, he would like, I like say their names, and then he would say the names of everybody that was already there forwards and backwards because he wasn't good at names and wanted to work on that. Um, like right now, he's on lockdown, of course, and um, he has this big list of things that he's
1: doing. Like he's
0: like, like he's, he has like all these
1: projects, and so he spends an
0: hour on each one.
1: He does a lot of uh
0: Facebook videos, I've seen. And another thing he's doing, like, people are having trouble exercising on lockdown and shit. And the gyms are, of course, all closed, so he's dancing for a half hour every day, just puts on a, a random mixtape and just like like dances for, for 30 minutes. Like, I, I was actually, I had the same idea, and I was doing this, um, for a couple of for about a month in, in the middle of the summer. But it's something that I want to get into again. I mean, it just makes so much sense to, you know, just just to dance every day. I have another friend that's been tap dances every day and has muscle, rather, um bone density problems. Um her bones are being like like their doctor says her bones are getting like noticeably stronger since she's dancing every day. I mean he he's a very saint but besides he's he's really, really nice you know, like like a truly not a nasty born in his body kind of guy I mean he's just um uh, an exemplary human being, and like i say like i've never worked with anyone that can take a song that i I need help on and, and make it like you know like more than i I, I dreamed or hoped. More than I hoped to dream the song could be by the time you know, like we work together.
1: You finished this huge project that you've been working on for a long time. And obviously, you're dealing with some ongoing voice issues. Did you ever have the thought of retiring or, or stopping or, or slowing down? Or is uh, it no. clear that you're no. just going to keep doing this? Never, 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 never. I'm just so far from being
0: able to accomplish what I would like to accomplish.
1: Do you have an idea of of what that is? Uh, Do you have a sense of what what it is that would feel finite for you?
0: be able to um, Um,
1: compose in more
0: varied and complicated um, um, structures um, as well as, you know, like, like, sort of kid bashing them. Like, 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 one thing I'm doing right now, for instance, is do up songs like uh, Rhythm and Blues circa um, mid-50s to 1960 about taking those songs and treating them like contemporary cars, like this 1959 model, and then customizing it, so to speak, by tweaking. Um, one way is to change the word or to add words. Another way is to alter the structures, like change the chords, change a chord here and there, or add like a B-bar, like in a song, Church Bells May May Ring by The Willows, 1956. And um, in the standard, you know, the, 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 the like, um, C a minor F G heart and soul progression. I put on a weird bridge on it, for instance, besides adding adding words like uh, just, just because um songs of the period do up songs were, were 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 pretty straightforward. Straightforward
1: and simple. simple.
0: Yeah. And studying them and tweaking them is really fun thing to do. And I'm working on long, long ago in from the eighteen thirties, and working on my favorite um, shape note song. All is Well, only doing it in a more <laughs> rhythm, bluesy style, as opposed to the 1880s. Um, I'm working a bunch of great, great American songbook songs, like, like Flamingo, uh, 1940, Duke Ellington. And, and um, I'm working on about 35 songs, basically, right now.
1: You've been productive during the quarantine. Yeah. And you found that you've been able to, I mean, obviously, I'm, I'm sure you're still talking to Jeffrey, but, you know, he's, he's obviously doing his own thing, you, you, you find that, that you're able to continue to, to be productive even though you're very much solo right now? Yeah, I'm trying to put out
0: videos, and I'm going to start recording with my daughter. Her, her husband will be moving in with us in um, early next year. We're talking about uh, doing some making videos together as well. And um, Jeffrey and I have a double album, which um, is all done. I'm trying to decide how to. It'll probably be really streaming and we have to do the liner notes for that. We always, we, we always spend like, basically, we each write about the individual songs. Well, first we each write about the, the album, then we each write about the individual songs, and sometimes we'll answer what the person's answering. You know, you know I like, go back and forth, and it's, um,
1: it's a very delightful,
0: interesting process.
1: It sounds like you're having as much fun as you ever had.
0: Um, basically,
1: I try. <laughs>